Please be seated. I invite you to Genesis, Genesis 39. <coughs> Genesis 39. Children do not generally question the wisdom and love of a parent when that parent gives them what they want. Buy your children a ticket to an amusement park or give them their favorite dessert after dinner. Permit them to go to a friend's house or whatever it might be and you won't be fielding any stiff challenges to your parental decision making. The criticism of your wisdom and love as a parent comes when you say no to a desired pleasure or demand a painful course of action. We don't question the wisdom and goodwill of a boss or a coach or a director who makes a tough decision with which we agree and asks us to do something that makes perfect sense to us. It is when their decisions prove painful or do not seem practical or fair that our trust in the boss or coach or director can turn very quickly to critique and to ridicule. It's not difficult to trust people in authority when they do what we expect, what we understand, and what we like. But when the person in charge makes a decision we do not understand, and a decision that proves painful or seemingly unfair, it is then that our faith and our loyalty are put to the test. And that is the test that we all face with God. We serve a God who has gone on record to say this to the children that He loves, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And sometimes as God's little children, we find those ways prove painful and they do not make sense to us. And we find our faith in God's wisdom and love tested. And we must realize God does not shy away from putting us through such tests. Abraham, leave your country and go to a land I will tell you about. Genesis 12. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. No more explanation. Genesis 22. Abraham never anticipated such commands. He could not understand the wisdom behind them, and they carried painful consequences. His faith in the wisdom and love of God was severely tested, and God let it go. He intended it. And to some degree, every person God has chosen as his own will face such tests of faith. That is not unusual, that is normal. As God works to accomplish his purposes through you, he will ordain circumstances that make no sense and cause no little difficulty. And buried in those circumstances, your faith and confidence in God will be tested. Satan intends to use those very circumstances to challenge your faith. 
to get you to question the love and the wisdom of God. God uses those very same circumstances to strengthen your confidence in Him. This is where we find Joseph as we finish out the 39th chapter of Genesis and enter into the 40th. Joseph is in the hole. He is an inmate in an Egyptian prison under the earth, the victim of unjust suffering. Now as we come to this section, I'd like to spend a few moments here to analyze how it sets within the narrative of Joseph. I think this will be helpful to us as we then consider the events of his life. First of all, and if we could have that other overhead there, and if you could please, Kelly, she just never knows what's coming. Don't turn it on. And uh, Here, let me get this. I'll just do this. We're looking at the life of Joseph. This kind of goes past today, so I'm going to do this here. As we look at the life of Joseph, we have tremendous hills and valleys. This is a roller coaster ride. If we just consider where we've been. First of all, born into Jacob's house, he rises to prominence as the favored son. And then as the favored son is sold into slavery. His world turns upside down. He drops in these difficult circumstances. But there in Potiphar's house, Genesis 39, he begins to rise. We don't know how long this rise takes place, but we know the whole period of slavery and um, uh, imprisonment lasts for 13, some 13, 12 years. We're not sure exactly, but something in that range. And during this time in Potiphar's house as a slave, he begins to rise and to take on tremendous responsibilities to the point where he is the, really the ruler of the house, so to speak, in Potiphar's place. But then you remember the seduction of Potiphar's wife and Jacob or Joseph is accused of rape. And once again, his life goes down in the valley. He goes down now lower than he has ever been before. It's low to be sold into slavery. It's even lower to be a slave who's imprisoned. His life continues in these hills and these valleys. And now as we look at him today within prison, thank you, we, are, we will look at the fact that he rises again to importance, but then another downturn. Now there's a, a key phrase here in all of this. And that is the phrase that we find in chapter 39 at verse 21, the Lord was with him. Now that's a very interesting phrase to insert right about that point in the text. As we end out chapter 39, he has been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, ripped from his family, his home, and his culture. He nonetheless strives with skillful industry and moral integrity to glorify God in his work as a slave. The net result of his virtue and skill, enthusiasm, and in his industry, he's falsely accused of rape and sent to prison. We might conclude at this point that nothing is going Joseph's way. That everything is against him. That God does not permit us to interpret the facts that way. Verse 21, the Lord was with him. This is a key phrase tying Joseph back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The phrase that is used here, you'll notice there probably a different typeset in the, for the word Lord. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And we find it here in verse 2. We find it two times in verse 3. We find it two times in verse 5. We find it also in verse 21 and 23 of the next chapter. The name is not used again until the very end of the book in chapter 49 and verse 18. What is the point? 
The name Yahweh is, very, is a very warm term for God, and it's usually found in context, emphasizing God's loyal love to his people. So what we see here is this staccato reference, Yahweh, 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 and then nothing in the text all the way until the very end of the book. I think what is happening here is Moses is saying to us, you must get this. It's like the name is flashing in lights. Jehovah God, Yahweh God, is protecting and watching and with Joseph. You must understand this through all of, all of these events that you read. Now notice that this phrase marks out the unique sections of this portion of the account. We have here an outline that you can follow. But as we look at verse 21 of Genesis 39, verses 1, oh, let me take you there on the overhead here. 39, 1 through 6, we have the narrator speaking. You remember back in that section, God is with Joseph in Potiphar's house, Moses says to us. And then the narrator stopped. You have to understand that. God is with Joseph. You must understand that as I go on to tell you this next account. And then it moves over to narrative. 39, 7 through 20. Joseph is accused of rape and sent to prison. Now we come back to the very same idea here of the narrator. Chapter 39, verses 21 through 23. God is with Joseph in prison. So as you look at 39, 21 through 23, we have again the narrator speaking, and then we'll move in, it's not here on this uh, overhead, but we'll move in then today to fill in another uh, section here of narrative. So the narrator speaks, God is with Joseph, here's what happens, and everything goes against him. God is with Joseph, he was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, here's what happens in Potiphar's house. God is with Joseph in prison, now here's what happens in prison. Thank you. So at, that brings us then at chapter 29, verse 21, to the narrator speaking and setting up for us the way that we are to understand the account of Joseph in prison. Chapter 39 and verse 21 through 23. In chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, we will look at Joseph's oppression and suffering in the whole. So here's what we gather then, moving in at this point. Joseph has been purchased by Potiphar. The captain of the guard in Egypt. Take note of that point. Joseph distinguishes himself in this prominent household as a man uniquely gifted with administrative skill. So capable is Joseph that Potiphar places his entire household in Joseph's care and under his watch, Potiphar's house greatly prospers in Joseph's hand. But Joseph is very good looking. He catches the eye of Potiphar's wife who seeks day after day to seduce him sexually. Joseph stands firm. He refuses to offend either his master or his God. Eventually, Potiphar's wife becomes so crazed with desire for him that she grabs him and pleads for him to sleep with her. He fled. She exploded. And in a dramatic turn of events, Joseph is accused of attempted rape, jailed with the political prisoners of Pharaoh. In the teeth of this bitter string of providences, Moses now speaks as the narrator, verse 21, and says something almost unbelievable. The Lord was with him, verse 21. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The Lord was with him. Let's focus on that idea first, divine favor. The Lord was with him and showed him kindness. The Hebrew word has said to extend loyal love to a covenant partner. Yahweh has sunk, or rather Joseph has sunk, 
to about the lowest possible position. He is a slave, and not only a slave, an imprisoned slave. But Yahweh does not deliver Joseph from misery. Think about that. He doesn't deliver him from misery, but he remains loyal to him. Joseph is in the hole, and so is God. The God who rescued Joseph from his brothers and the cistern attends Joseph in this Egyptian dungeon. Now there's divine favor, but there's also human favor that Joseph receives here. Joseph did not come with a divine tattoo emblazoned on his forehead. I am Joseph. Pretty soon I'm going to be the co-ruler in Egypt. Watch how you handle me. That's not the case. He's just going about his work, and as he goes about his work, this prison warden says, this is a unique man. This man has tremendous administrative skills. He senses what needs to be done, and he gets it done. I think I can count on him. He begins to lean on Joseph. And Joseph, we don't find here pouting or moping or sitting around questioning why God was doing what he was doing. We find Joseph just rolling up his sleeves and working hard. And the man notices. It's a point of application for us, but if God providentially allows you to be put in the pit of oppression and suffering, serve God in the pit and serve Him with enthusiasm. Moping and whining and complaining and second-guessing God gets you nowhere. But everywhere Joseph is, every time the roller coaster of his life goes down into the valley, he rises because of God's blessing and his hard, diligent work. He's a leader now in the dungeon. Verse 22, So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Literally, he gave the prison into Joseph's hand. Oriental prisons were not restricted by the laws and regulations of our society. A prison keeper had one basic duty. You're asked to present a criminal, present him. That was basically the rule. What you did with him when he was in your care, that was your business. But if, you're, if he's asked to be presented, you better show up with the prisoner. You remember that in the, in the uh, account in Acts where there's that, that earthquake and the prisoners are released, it would appear, and have gotten away. What does the jailkeeper do? He's ready to lean on his sword, right? It's over. I, didn't produ- I can't produce the criminals. I'm done. That, that was your basic point. So Potiphar, or rather the, the warden here, has every authority to do whatever he'd like with Joseph, and he uses his skill to full advantage. Prison officials don't make a career out of compassion. And they're not noted for trusting inmates. This is divine grace operating in Joseph's life story, even here in prison. And so, verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Apparently, he doesn't even fear that Joseph will escape. Maybe that was impossible. We don't know all of the circumstances, but he just simply turns it all over to Joseph and trusts him. Now notice back in 39 verses 3 and 4. In 39, 3 and 4, we read almost identical words from Potiphar's house. 
Verse 3 of 39, when the master saw that the Lord was with him, there's Yahweh again, and that Yahweh gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put, in char- put him in charge of his household, put everything into his hand, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So even these pagan officials of the Pharaoh cult could see that Yahweh was with Joseph. Now hear the narrator's words back in 39 as we move into chapter 40. Now the narrator's words fade away and we enter into a narrative account of Joseph's life in prison. The flashing lights. God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. But now we come down on the carpet and we consider the events and the circumstances of his life. Joseph is destined for more disappointment and misuse. Verse 1 of chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. They were there in custody with him at the same time. It's not important for us to know what these two men did, only that they were in hold until an imperial decision could be reached to decide their fate. The important point here is that they were put in the prison with Joseph. God is slowly weaving together the various fabrics of his providential tapestry in the Joseph story. And Now, in that day, we, we think of a cupbearer, somebody who's a, who's a servant, we might think of a waitress as a cupbearer. Uh, we, we might think of a, a baker as, as somebody that works at Cub Foods at 2.30 in the morning has a horrible situation there, uh, getting their fingers burned in grease. That's our situation. That is not the situation here. To be the cupbearer and the baker in that day was a, was a position of high prominence. Ancient kings, and for very good reason, were always afraid that someone would poison their food or their drink. And so you employed a chief baker and a chief cupbearer. These individuals didn't necessarily do all of the pressing of the grapes and all of the baking of the baked goods, but they were the, the person who oversaw the process of the king's food and therefore assured that he was going to show up the next morning to eat again. And sometimes, if they ate food before the king that was poison, they would take the hit for the king. So it was a job assuring the safety of the king, someone who was in very close proximity to him, and so the cupbearer in particular, and also the chief baker, would often become confidants of the pharaoh. They were generally wealthy people, powerful individuals in the society. Did you notice in in verse 3 there, the prison was in the house of the captain of the guard. This is an interesting point, because go back to chapter 39 and verse 1, and we see that that is how Moses refers to Potiphar, as the captain of the guard. It was very interesting. Apparently, Joseph is still on the estate of Potiphar. We need to also understand here that ancient criminal law emphasizes the punishment of criminals, not their confinement. The idea, was to make, the, the idea was to make a criminal pay for his crime, not simply to be taken out of circulation, as this kind of theory in our culture. But a common thief might, for instance, have his hand lopped off, but he would not be confined in prison for a lengthy period of time to eat food and do nothing. This prison was a holding tank for important government officials, until which time as a decision could be made concerning their fate. This all indicates, again, 
This, is, this prison is on the estate of Potiphar. He is ultimately in charge as the captain of the guard for the prisoners there, and there's a prison warden there. It all goes together again to indicate that Potiphar probably didn't believe his wife's accusation of rape, but he has to take Joseph out of circulation. He can't have him there in the house any longer, and apparently he doesn't know quite what to do with him. Perhaps he and the prison warden talk together, and that is part of how Joseph rises to prominence here in the prison. We don't know all of that, but at any rate, he is used for his administrative skills. Joseph is joined here in his duties in this prison by these two political prisoners. And as they join him, time keeps ticking away. Day after day, Joseph serves faithfully with absolutely no idea what in the world God is doing with all of this. Verse 4, at the end of verse 4, this text takes the sentence there. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. The dreams these men had that night were not the kind you quickly forget. It stuck with them, and they had a sense that there was really significant meaning to these dreams. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. I'm sure they were dejected every day, but they're really dejected this day. They're really troubled. Uh, the, the, the idea of the word is of great disturbance of mind. Verse 7, so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? That's an amazing question. Joseph has a heap of trouble of his own, doesn't he? And he comes to them and says, man, I see that your face are downcast. What's the problem? Can I help here? He could have dumped on them a whole story of trouble. But he asked them what's bothering them. Verse 8, we both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. In that day, every pharaoh had professional interpreters of dreams, men dedicated in their careers to telling the future. It was a hoax profession, like some today, that no one really trusted, but everyone insisted was necessary. No different in our own situation. But working as Pharaoh's confidants, these men were well aware that there were professionals who could interpret dreams, but there weren't any of those professionals here in this prison. And so they're really disappointed. They're upset. They're troubled. What Joseph asks next, or says next, is both a mild rebuke and a powerful testimony. Verse 8, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. If, if we could parallel this to today, this would be like you're at work and uh, two guys come into the workroom, sit down their lunch, and, and they're talking between the two of them, and they're really upset about something. And you hear them grumbling, and you say, what's the problem? And they say, we're having family troubles, both of us, serious marital troubles, and we, we can't afford to go to a psychologist. And so you say to them, didn't God create marriage? Didn't he write the final word on it? Tell me your trouble. It's kind of the idea here. Joseph is, in, the, is in, the, in a setting. He's a slave. He's in the setting of a time when there are professionals who are close advisors to the king who interpret dreams. And here's this Hebrew slave in this pit saying, tell me your dream. Dreams belong to God. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it, 
it budded, it blossomed, its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. In the Hebrew text, these words are choppy and abrupt, indicating that the scene passed by very quickly. Three branches, they bud, they quickly blossom. From the blossoms come grapes. He quickly squeezes the grapes into the cup, and he puts the cup literally in the palm of Pharaoh's hand. Joseph does not hesitate. He moves right into the interpretation of the dream. There is a connection between Joseph and God, and God is uniquely blessing Joseph here so that he's capable of doing this. Verse 12, he just comes straight forward with this. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. He will lift up your head. It's a figure of speech, meaning he will summon you. He will, he will address your case. He'll he's going to address your situation here. Now, if, if you were one of Pharaoh's hoax interpreters, you probably could pretty well get close to this, right? It looks pretty clear that his job's going to be restored to him. What you couldn't get is what the meaning of the three branches was, and that was that within three days this is all going to happen. God genuinely reveals the interpretation of this dream to Joseph, and he's able to discern three days. happens to be Pharaoh's birthday. You're going to once again be restored to your official position as cupbearer. Now at this point, there's a very important appeal on Joseph's part, and it's set at the center of this narrative and is very significant. Verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to, to deserve being put in a dungeon. The Hebrew word pit or cistern. I'm confident that God has revealed the truth to me. I know that you'll be restored in three days. Will you please remember that I have helped you here, and will you please restore me to my position? And we notice here when Joseph tells his story, finally now at this point, apparently hasn't done so previously, but we notice here that Joseph does not defame his brothers or Potiphar's wife. But he does maintain his innocence. He must assure his inmate that he is not imprisoned for his own evil and will not betray his friend's favor. Please remember me. So although Joseph is trusting God, I think we take a cue here from the fact that though he's trusting God, he uses the means available to him to, to be released. He's not a fatalist. He's active as he understands the providence of God. There's another point in verse 15 we just have to stop and consider here, and that is the phrase, the land of the Hebrews. The land of the Hebrews, was, that is not how an Egyptian would understand Canaan. It's not the land of the Hebrews. There's some Hebrews living there, but it's not the land of the Hebrews. I think it may well be a statement of genuine faith on Joseph's part. It will become the land of the Hebrews. God has promised it to us. He refers to that, just kind of slips that in there, as the land of the Hebrews. He says, remember me, because I don't deserve to be here. I deserve to be there. I'm in a pit. I'm in the hole. But I deserve to be back 
in the land of the Hebrews. Remember me. Well, the chief baker, he's been holding back all this time, and you wonder if he doesn't have good reason to be holding back. He was apparently guilty of some terrible crime because he, as he holds back, but he hears the, he hears the uh, good report, and he says, maybe I'll try my shot at this. So verse 16, the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation. He said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. The Egyptian bakers were noted for carrying their goods in a basket on their head. So this was just very common. Just like the cupbearer, he sees himself in his daily routine. The problem is he's not going to make it to Pharaoh's palace with the baked goods because the birds are eating all of the goods out of his basket, on the, uh, the, these three baskets on his head. Verse 18, this is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Joseph employs a gruesome play on words here. If we put it differently, it might be something like, in three days, Pharaoh will take up your case, but he will also take off your head. This is, uh, some, it's a lot of debate as to what's exactly meant here. How do you hang a guy if, if it's hanging that's involved, or if it's impalement, or gallows. There's a lot of debate as to what actually is meant here, but the point is very clear. The baker would be executed. His corpse would be treated with utmost indignity. I think the idea is probably, if I had to take a guess at it, I think it's talking about decapitation and then impalement of his corpse on a pole for the birds, the carrion birds, to eat, pick away at his flesh. It's a gruesome event. You'll notice here, Joseph is not a giddy optimist, imbued merely with a positive attitude, interpreting every dream positively. He delivers a tough message here. Even though it's painful and gruesome, he delivers the truth. Verse 20, all of this comes to play, comes into play, comes to pass. Verse 20, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. That is, he took up their case while all of his officials are with him. He wants to send a message. It's my birthday. You're all here gathered around. Time to celebrate. I want you all to note what I'm going to do here. I'm going to take up the case of the baker and the cupbearer. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Pharaoh or Joseph had said to, to them in his interpretation. So all that Joseph says comes to pass. I would imagine perhaps Pharaoh wanted to display for his officials both his grace and his severity. You can rejoice in my gracious, kind rule if you are faithful to me. If you are not loyal subjects, you need to fear. But more importantly here, is that Joseph's interpretations are flawless. He doesn't go too far. Make a whole bunch of details out of the three blossoms, for instance. He hits it square on. Everything that he says comes true. He did not say too little. The timing was perfect. It was three days. Joseph's declaration that interpretations belong to God was confirmed. Now, let me stop here at this point, and let's talk about these dreams for a moment. 
We need to see here that revel various revelatory dreams show up in the Joseph narrative and play a very important role in describing to us, that is, showing to us, making evident the sovereignty of God. What is taking place in the human realm is happening because of God's design and purpose, and these dreams tip people off to that, if I could use that phrase. We have three uh, series of dreams. First of all, in chapter 37, what's the dream there? Joseph has two dreams saying the same thing. Here in chapter 40, we have two dreams basically saying the same thing. Two different men, of course, but saying that there's going to be a decision on the part of Pharaoh with these two men. In chapter 41, we're going to encounter two dreams of Pharaoh, both dreams saying the same thing. I think that the point through all of this is that God knows about death and life. He knows who will die and He knows who will live, the baker and the cupbearer. God knows about fertility and drought, Pharaoh's dream which is to come in chapter 41. He knows about prosperity and He knows about suffering in Joseph's case. And I think these two dreams, all coming together in couples, often seem that the dreams were sent in twos in order to confirm that God is in this. We have repeating dreams, I think all of us, once in a while, but generally not two nights in a row the same exact dream. If that happens, I guess you should just be worried or something. I don't know, but it's never happened in my life, the exact same dream or with the same idea two nights in a row. But notice 41 and verse 32. If we could just jump ahead and steal from the narrative to follow. Chapter 41 and verse 32. After Pharaoh has two dreams that seem very similar, Joseph says the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. There may be dreams that are just warning. There are dreams that are revelatory, where God is speaking, in a sense, His truth about what will happen in the future. God reveals the future because He has written it. In these dreams, He re reveals the future because He knows what it will be. Verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. There's those two statements there. It's almost as, did I get that right? And the text confirms it. He forgot him. How could he possibly forget Joseph? This is an amazing interpretation of a dream that is true, comes true, and is so amazing in its own right. Well, we do need to understand here that the Bible generally uses the word forget in a way differently than we use it. The word forget is not used generally in the psychological sense of passing from one's memory, but in the moral sense of forsaking a trust. The idolaters of Israel were routinely rebuked by the prophets for what? For forgetting God. Now, they weren't forgetting God psychologically, it passed from their memory. They were offering sacrifices to God, but they'd forgotten Him morally. They forgot God in the sense of idolatrous negligence and disrespect. I think that fits more the idea here probably of the cupbearer. He does not forget Joseph existed. He just never gets around to telling Pharaoh about him. 
He's kind of out of mind, not in the sense that it'll never come back or could not come back. We find, obviously, in the next uh, narrative that it's very much alive in the cupbearer's mind what Joseph has done, and he can bring it back to memory very quickly, but he just never gets around to helping Joseph. His sin against Pharaoh cannot even begin to compare with his sin against Joseph. Joseph has suffered yet another injustice. Ripped away from his family, his country, and his culture, he has lost his freedom, he's lost his reputation, now another severe blow. He has been betrayed and forgotten, left to rot in the hole. One day passed, I'm sure Joseph probably had thought something like, well, it's going to take him a little time. He's got to take some time to get Pharaoh's ear, and I've got to be patient, I've got to be patient. But one day turned into a second, and then into a third. Egyptian prisons weren't nice places to find yourself. Unlike our prisons today, they didn't have gyms, televisions, entertainment, and education. They were a place to rot away. That second day turned to a third, and a third to a fourth, and one week to a second, and one month to a second. Think about this. And Joseph, as he perhaps can see the time of the year, looks out through some window of some sort, or maybe there's even a calendar for his use as an administrator, and he realizes it was one year ago today that he was delivered from prison. Nothing. And that year turned into a second year. Nothing. Day after day, the very best years of Joseph's life faded away in prison. He was in slavery or in a dungeon between the years of 17 and 30. The best years of his life physically are wasted in the pit as day after day after day passes away. What does Joseph have to cling to now? The only thing left are his own dreams. The dreams of chapter 37 and the word of God that someday his brothers would bow before him. Things aren't looking too well. He's been here in Egypt since about 17 or 18, and he's now 30 years of age. And brothers don't come to Egyptian prisons, particularly when they sold you there and say that you're dead and come down and bow before you. Where is God? What is God doing? And let's put God in the dock for a moment, if we can do so reverently, and say, why this many years? Day after day, month after month, hope dribbles away. Why does God do this? Does he love Joseph? Is this the better part of his wisdom? Joseph's world had fallen in on him, it would seem. He was oppressed and the victim of numerous profound injustices. What could God possibly be doing in all of this? 
Well, we know the end of the story, and what's, that's one of the benefits of the biblical text, is we can be instructed about how to interpret life. And one principle that we gain certainly from Joseph and knowing where things will head is this principle. You belong to God, God is with you. We might conclude from our trials that God sees only the big picture. He can't really be concerned about the daily passing of time in the pit. God's got a world to run. Can't be too concerned about me down here and these little difficulties of life hour after hour in the pain of human suffering. God doesn't have anything to do with that. Doesn't know about that, we might think. He's sovereign, He's great, but He doesn't know how I feel. He couldn't know how Joseph felt and still love him. We might be tempted to say, well, I would say on the authority of God's word that God knew exactly how Joseph felt. He was with there with him. He was with him in that pit. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. I'd like to turn to a number of passages here as we consider Joseph's life. If you'll just bear with me a little bit longer. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Was God with Joseph? Is he with you in the hole? Hebrews 4 and verse 14, we know these comforting words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4, 14, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and I think we need to read here in this context, Jesus, the one who died on the cross, the one who died in your place to bear your sin, the one who suffered the ultimate indignity without sleep, his back ripped to shreds, his head bleeding, tortured, beaten, suffering Jesus. Let us hold then firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable. sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what Joseph was going through. God knows. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God is with you. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Can a woman forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, yeah, it is possible, sadly. The papers bear that out. Pretty rare, though. Even if that's possible, says God, though she may forget, I will not forget. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I will not forget. Israel, says God, 
we are reminded that to say my circumstances are not fair, God has forgotten me. God does not love me is wrong thinking. It's the wrong way to interpret the circumstances of life. Our problem is not with time in the hole. Our problem is not with the confining circumstances of suffering. Our problem was, is in how we interpret them. You're engraven on my hand. I can sympathize with every weakness. I know what it is to cry. My God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think in one sense that any of us will ever be able to pray that prayer because he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That is how we must learn to interpret our trials and our suffering, our disappointments and our betrayals. What is your hole? What is your pit? The confining circumstances of suffering or things that do not go your way or people that make your life miserable. One thing you have got to say is number one, God is with you, and number two, God, secondly, is building you. He's making you into a greater person through your trial, if you truly know him. Joseph, we can see, we're given almost a God's eye perspective of Joseph's life. We know where this is headed. We know what's happening in Joseph's life. We know where God is taking him. He doesn't know as 13 years pass away. But we know God is honing this young man with all of his administrative skills to prepare him to use those skills at just the right time in just the right place for just the right purpose. He's preparing Joseph, it's not a mistake that he ran Potiphar's house for a while and then ran the prison for a while. Joseph is honing his, his administrative skills while he comes to the point of maturity where he can handle those skills next to the most powerful man on earth and do so with success. And he's being prepared to trust God. Psalm 119, 71. If you want to jot it down or turn to it, let me just read it very quickly. Psalm 19 and verse 71 says this. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. If, if I could apply that, turn it just a little bit, it is good for me to be afflicted that I learn to interpret life from your perspective. That I learn to see this world and suffering from divine perspective. That's what this life is about. It's not about ease and success. It's about learning to see from God's eyes. And we need to get a good vision of pain and suffering because that vision will take us into glory that we might better understand the grace and the mercy of God. Classic line from The Problems of Pain by C.S. Lewis. He said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures.
He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts at us in our pain. Pain, says Lewis, is God's megaphone. That may not seem to be the case right out of the chute. But people who walk with God and grow through pain all say the very same thing. It is through our struggles and our pain and our trials that God most speaks most clearly to us. That's a topic for another day. But do you want a God who whispers to you? Or do you want a God who speaks clearly? Quickly. We must see how God puts all of this together and know that this is how God puts life together. Walkie writes this so well. This is such a great phrase. Ultimately, he said, the closing of prison doors is designed by the Lord to open palace doors. But only in his timing. Potiphar writes Bush, Potiphar and even Potiphar's wife served providence in all the evil which they did to Joseph. Whilst they most egregiously violated God's commands, they were fulfilling His counsels. God only knows what degree of trouble is necessary for His people or how long it is proper they should continue under its pressure. That is His business. But He is always working to accomplish His good ends for you and for His name. could bear with me one more thought. If you're not on the page with me, which I believe, and I'm saying this up front, I, I believe is the Bible on this issue of the providence of God, but if you're not with me here, you will steer around growth. And here's how you'll do it. The trials and the suffering and the difficulties of life have nothing to do with God. That's a Satan's work. It's a painful, wicked, cruel world, and there's no reason to any of the pain. It's Satan's design. It's his doing. It's his thing. And you don't ever have to question God. You don't ever say, in the words of Christ, why have you forsaken me? Though, again, we can't fully say that phrase ever, but you don't ever feel abandoned. You don't ever sense that God's way is unfair. You don't ever have to come to terms with what God is doing because He's not in control. And so you kind of do an end run around this whole idea, and it's Satan in this wicked world that brings all of this evil here, and God has nothing to do with it. There's huge problems to that approach. First of all, it's patently unbiblical, but secondly, that then leads you into serious depression because you live in this cruel world and you can't really ever know if Jesus will win. He says he's going to win over evil. If he has the power to win over evil, why is he not winning the game now? Is he just a showboat? He likes to go down six to nothing in the game and win in the ninth inning, seven to six? If he's choosing not to defeat it now, is he ever going to? Can you ever have the confidence that he will? I think people who steer around the idea of God's providence deal with tremendous trial and depression because they don't have a God who runs the universe, and that's not the God of the Bible.
And so you've got to cut out verse after verse after verse after passage of comfort and passage of comfort. You've got to throw it away because it's not there in your view of the world. But if you see that every trial is an appointment from God, then you've entered into God's school of discipline. And you either don't know him or you're going to grow. He's going to build you and deepen you and make you and prepare you for the glory that he wants for you, whatever that is, in this life or the next. If you believe that God ordains what comes to pass, that he's willed that evil be, and that he lets Satan's chain out just as far as he chooses book of Job, then you're going to have your faith tested. And as you do, remember this, God's wisdom is complete, his timing is perfect, and his grace is all sufficient. God's ways are incapable of improvement. He is always exactly on time. And the only issue is whether my joy rests on my wisdom, my timing, and my resources, or his. And when you find yourself with that spirit in the midst of a task, a confining, suffering task, go to work. Do the work he's given you to do with what he's given you to do it. Serve and trust him, because you know in the end, we're all his servants. I might be a servant in an Egyptian dungeon, I might be a servant of the world as the President of the United States. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill the will that he has assigned for me. What that is, where that is, the degree of suffering, the degree of difficulty, that's his call. I'm his servant. I do what he's called me to do. I'm not saying that that is easy, but I believe it's God's counsel. So if we can keep that clear and we can press to that end, by his grace we can pass through the sufferings of this life, having brought glory to his name and entering into his presence with singing. I don't want to enter God's presence with the correcting of my spirit. Oh, now I get it. I want to enter into his presence saying, I struggled, I sinned, I did not glorify you in the sufferings of this life, but I enter into your presence with joy because I knew all along the dream would come true. And it will for his people. We just have to be patient and wait. Let's pray. We need to... Father, what help we need from you. We can hit our finger with a hammer and curse your name. How small we are, how weak we are. 
God, when the trials get turned on and people offend, it gets difficult for us to see your hand in it. But I pray that you will nurture your people along and help us forward. We're not asking for pain and for suffering, but we certainly see the reason that we can rejoice in it and pray that you'll help us to that end. Bless your people. There are those here today that I know suffer, numerous individuals in our assembly that suffer physically, financially, relationally. As I look at the faces of these people, I know that there are people here at times who cry themselves to sleep because the trials are bigger than they are. But God, I pray that you'll teach us as a church that the trials are never bigger than you are and that you will carry them for us. That it's our job to work on our attitude and our respect for you and to do our work, whatever that is that you've given us to do. I pray to this end, if there is one that is not a believer here in our assembly, may well be, even one who thinks they are, I pray that you'll open their eyes, that they'll seek you and find you as you draw them by your light to the truth. Only you can do this, and we pray that you will. For those of us who know you, may we have been strengthened in our faith, and may we learn to walk honorably before you. In Jesus' name.